Foreman and joining me today is the co-host of the number one show in late night, Gutfeld with an exclamation point, as well as author of the new book, You Can't Joke About That, Why Everything is Funny, Nothing is Sacred, and We're All in This Together, my friend Kat Tim. Kat, welcome, finally. Is this your first appearance? This is it. First time on The Rubin Report? It is. It is, actually. It's been a long time coming, but yes, this is my very first time. I'm very excited to be here. Very first time. Now, first off, technically, am I, is that correct? Are, do you, are you a co-host on Gutfeld? I mean, you're in the chair basically every day and Tyrus is in yeah. the other chair and then there are two other guests. But are you technically, did I get that right? Yeah, no, that's right. Greg will call me that, so I think it's allowed. I told you right before Great. we started that I'm going to treat you like Greg treats you because I want you to feel at home here. Is that, is that all right with yeah, you? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> okay, very good. Uh, let's get, well... Before we get into some of the politics stuff and, and the stuff around free speech and, and all the stuff that we're normally talking about, uh, you go a bit into your into growing up and, and youth and how that sort of frames some of the beliefs that you have. So you want to do a little bit of that first? Um, are you talking about, you know, when I started doing stand up back in, you know, when I was growing up when I was 22? Um, I was even you know, going like, back further than that, growing up in a Catholic household and, and some of the sacred cows there. But we can we can do that, too. Okay, yeah. I mean, it's like that's the first chapter and then the Catholic household is the second chapter. Um, I can get into the, either one. Um, so for me, I, I mean, this is the final chapter in my book, but for me, comedy is a religion for me because I unfortunately don't have a religion. I say unfortunately because I think I probably would be, I know I would be happier if I were religious, but I just, I can't really seem to get there. I hope that it changes someday for me. But comedy actually does a lot of the same things as religion does, right? Um, it brings people closer together. It can add meaning to um, certain experiences in your, in your life, including the traumatic ones. Um, it can, you know, be healing mentally. It can be healing emotionally and even physically, the boost that you get from laughter and your immunity. And there's all these different studies. The two things that it's really missing is, first of all, the prom there's no promise of eternal life with any joke, no matter how good it is, unfortunately. And um, the second thing that's missing is forgiveness, right? Because every religion has some sort of path to forgiveness. Uh, the Catholic Church was confession, which I would go and always be honest. Even when it was on, I was old enough where my sins were a little bit less comfortable to talk to um, an older, strange man about. Um, but in like you learn, you read the Bible, right? Leviticus is Old Testament, so it's like not a, chill, it's not chill. It's in the New Testament comes in and is like supposed to be about forgiveness and chill and all, you know, more easygoing. Leviticus is ex extremely fire and brimstone text, but even Leviticus, the standard is eye for an eye. Um, what we're doing right now with comedy and speech is actually stricter and more fire and brimstone than Leviticus, because I don't think anybody. Would, tell, would be able to honestly tell you the worst thing that they've ever been through is hearing a joke that they thought was offensive. <laughs> but there's Although more than you've, one Although if you've watched Jimmy Kimmel, it can be quite grueling. Well, see, but th there's more than one person who would say telling the wrong joke actually is the worst thing that they've been through because they maybe lost everything or lost millions and millions of dollars or lost their respect or, you know, ability to come and be a human in the square, right, the public square. So I feel like if the way that we're treating jokes is stricter than Leviticus, we're doing something wrong. What year did you start doing stand-up? 
So I started doing it in college. I did it a few times. So I graduated college in 2010. And then after that, when I left um, college, I moved to L.A. Uh, It was supposed to be a short-term move. And then I was going to, I was going to, I had a fellowship, a stipend to live out there. I had an internship at Fox News. And then I had gotten into Columbia Journalism School. So I was going to use my stipend for housing until it ran out and then live with my college boyfriend for two weeks. And then we were going to break up and then I was going to go to Columbia and it didn't work out that way. It was a very, I'm 21. So it was a very dumb plan, but where I wasn't dumb was taking out an $80,000 loan for journalism school. So I decided instead to just stay in LA, get journalism internships and learn skills for free and wait tables. But things got really rough for a while. Uh, the boyfriend broke up with me. Uh, I had to move into this really – I was living in squalor. I mean I, I got fleas and scabies the same week. My cat got the fleas. I got the scabies, but then the fleas jumped onto me. That was the same <laughs> week I lost my apartment. I was running myself ragged. I write up all about it in my first chapter. But what I was doing that made me feel power in my life was stand-up comedy. Every free moment I had, I was going to open mics anywhere I could and talking about my dumpster fire life on stage. And make you know making jokes about these things that were making me feel so helpless gave me some power over it, and hearing people laugh and all of that, and it just makes me kind of nervous and terrified and upset about what we're seeing happen in our culture, where you can't joke about sad or serious or controversial subjects when really that that's the way that I found healing through every tough time in my life was by joking about the stuff you're not supposed to joke about. Do you look back on them? I think I already know the answer and and think of those years, the scabies years as the good old days, because I know for me, for those 10 years of struggling in New York City as a stand up and standing out in Times Square with tickets and literally being broke to the point that I had a friend who who worked in food service and would deliver me industrial sized cans of tuna that I would eat for weeks and all of that stuff. I now look back at them kind of like, oh, those were the good old days. Like, I, I'm, I have everything I want now. My life is good. But, like, there's something charming about, like, that struggle. But once yeah, you make it, it to the actually, other side, I guess. Right, exactly. It actually is really strange just how, spe- like, in what a specific way I was able to achieve my goals. Because back when that guy and I were still dating in Los Angeles, uh, his, we were at his brother's house, and we used to always watch Red Eye because it was on at midnight there. And I was like... I would be so good on this show. (laughs) And his brother was like, you're a cashier at Boston Market, which was true. If you think in terms of what's likely to be possible, I shouldn't have even gotten on the show, let alone been the co-host of the show that would follow that up. But it it is remarkable. But man, those times were absolutely rough. I mean, the treatment for scabies, I don't know if you ever had it, you have to cover your entire body in a cream and just sit there for like hours on end. And the fact that that was the same time I had to move in with this Colombian family of this bartender that I was sort of seeing at my California Pizza Kitchen job and all these conversations about how just because I need to live here doesn't mean we're together together. Uh, Just sitting there at his house, his mom's around. My Spanish was never better, which is, I think, like the one positive thing of that experience. I was very good at Spanish back then. Um, But, you know, like, I don't know how I would have gotten through it if I wasn't able to laugh at it. Because if you laugh at something, then you're telling yourself, oh, it's not that scary. You're telling that thing you're not that scary. And that's the only way I was able to get through it. And now I just just am worried that that's not going to be possible for many people anymore. People are too afraid. Wait, I want to keep going with that. But you worked at Boston Market and California Pizza Kitchen. Any other major chains on your resume? 
Ruby Tuesday. Oh, and Ruby um, Tuesday with the salad yeah. bar and everything. Yes. I also worked in a, at a diner called Four and Twenty Diners in Sherman Oaks. It was a pie, right? It was a pie place. So it's to be like Four and Twenty Blackbirds baked in a pie. But of course, everybody, a lot of people would think it was a restaurant that just made edibles. <laughs> <laughs> So I would have to explain to people like, no, there's no weed in our food. Sorry, but. I used to live in Sherman Oaks. I don't remember the pie place, but that might've been the edibles. I'm not so sure. Yeah. Does this all like seem very obvious to you in a way? Like, you know, obviously on the show, you guys are talking about the woke thing constantly and, we, and it just has infected everything. Everyone gets it. But when you see just all of these hysterical, joyless kids who are so confused about reality and have no sense of humor and have gone out of their way to cancel everybody from the past and, you know, go after every show that we used to love or that Friends now, you know, Jennifer Aniston says Friends they could never put on air. For the record, I'm more of a Seinfeld guy. Uh, but it just seems like the obvious extension of this hysteria, doesn't it? Yes. And see, what I do in my book is rather than say, okay, all of these things that people have been canceled for joking about, you can. I take it nine million steps further. And I say there's not a such thing as something that you can't joke about. And yes, I'm including religion. Yes, I'm including death. Yes, I'm including terminal illness. Um, because there's research that backs this stuff up. I'm, I'm not just saying this. I mean... Um, I write a chapter, obviously, about the shit bag, um, which I had that emergency surgery. I had an ostomy for five weeks. And as I was being wheeled into my surgery, I was like, what am I going to tell people? Because I know that everybody's going to be like, oh, like so weird around me about it or scared about what to say. Same way as when my mom died at a young age. And the friends I wanted to talk to weren't the ones with the most carefully chosen words. They were the friends who just were able to joke around with me about it. Um, I joke around about, I threw a cat's out of the bag party after where I had some unused, but already open ostomy bags. We were bonging champagne out of them. And then I started thinking more because I had a lot of time to do nothing but think because I had some, you know, the ostomy and it was also the pandemic. But think about all the people who have died recently of cancers. We didn't know that they had like Chadwick Boseman, like Norm Macdonald, because they didn't want to be treated differently. They didn't want the illness to be the defining thing that people thought about when you talk to them. And you actually, I mean, I cite this research in my book, there's people that are terminally ill, that, that people that are, they treat the terminally ill who rank humor as being super high on their list, even in uh, one study that was pretty small, but still higher than the management of their physical pain. Um, I, when I wrote the chapter, I ser uh, Google searched cancer and then how to tell people I have cancer. And the second one had way more results. So clearly, everybody kind of gets this, but people are too afraid because of what the consequences might be if they say the wrong thing. But actually, what you're really doing is the people you're hurting the most are the ones who the rules are supposed to be in place to protect. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Do you sense that's changing a little bit? I mean, even if you were just looking at the success of Gutfeld. I mean, it, it is by far the number one show in Late Night, which as you know, on the, on the debut episode, I predicted that he yeah. would be number one. I said it was gonna take a year. It took him only about four months or something, which is incredible. But I mean, the fact is, the one politically incorrect show on Late Night is the number one show in Late Night. So that shows you that something's shifting at least, or maybe it's just exclusive to, you know, kind of our side of the aisle. Yeah, absolutely. Especially because there's so much to joke about when it comes to, you know, the current administration. And I think a lot of other shows are kind of, they don't want to do that. 
Um, they, I mean, our show, you can kind of say stuff that you can definitely not say on other on other shows. It's a very comfortable place. And even for somebody like me, where I'm not a Republican, um, I'm libertarian, very much so. And everybody who watches the show knows that. Um, I don't fit into a particular box. And I feel very comfortable on that show expressing myself, even when I do have opinions that might differ with the, you know, typical conservative um, audience. And I, it's just everything's cool. And I just think that when we talk about speech and we talk about comedy, a lot of the argument is, okay, I can say whatever I want and you can't stop me no matter how divisive it might be. And that's true. But that also, I think, really ignores the way that comedy and open communication can bring us all together. Because we're never going to be able to understand each other if we can't fully express ourselves to each other. Yeah, it's true. Do you remember when you first wanted to make people laugh? I mean, I remember the exact moment, 1983, I was sitting in my parents' living room watching Bill Cosby himself. And this was way before, you know, serial rapist Bill Cosby, or at least that we knew of. And I remember thinking this is, you know, the chocolate cake thing. And I was just like, this is the funniest thing I've ever seen. That's what I, how could you not want to do that? Yeah, I mean, I've always been a performer, but I have an atrocious singing voice. Um, but I, like, I, I, I try to get lessons and the woman called my mother and said, I don't feel right about taking your money anymore. She's never going to get it. But I would still audition for all the musicals at the community theater and I would just get on stage and I would sing happy birthday. Everyone had, you know, vocal coach and all this stuff and they had these prepared numbers and I'd look at them like, I'm a star baby. Like, I don't know what you're thinking. Like put me on the show. And I would always have these small, you know, roles because I actually really, truly can't sing. So I got more in, more into comedy, and you know, I, it's also something that I was bullied a lot as a child, and if I could laugh at it, it became so much easier. I mean, even to this day, I, I write a whole chapter about toxic positivity, where there's this idea now that if you, know, if you don't like something about your body or your face or something like that, just love it. Instead of not liking it, just love it, and then you'll be super happy. And I don't doubt that that would be true. But what if you can't? I don't think it's possible for anybody to be completely optimistic about themselves all the time. And I studies back that up, too. I mean, this idea of body positivity has been around forever, but it's actually nobody's actually capable of doing it. And what I found is a great replacement is to make fun of the things that I hate about myself. So if somebody says something to me about something, you know, oh, like, oh, my, I have a flat chest. Like, oh, I was already at brunch joking about how my bra size is double mastectomy. Like, I've already, I beat you, and I've made these things less scary by finding them, you know, funny. You know, speaking of health stuff, we actually have something in common that I I did not know until you told me privately. I'm actually not sure if you've talked about it that much publicly, but uh, my audience knows about seven years ago or so, when I first started getting popular and I was getting all this hate and I didn't realize I wasn't dealing with stress well, I developed alopecia and I lost probably 40% of my hair, huge chunks all over my head. I went on crazy experimental medications. It was by far the most depressed I've ever been. I almost quit, like I actually had a night where I was like, I'm not gonna be on camera anymore, I'm done, I'll just go do something else. Uh, but you got that too, uh, not yeah. not too long ago, but I have to say your hair is looking quite luxurious at the moment. And So uh, I have extensions in, but my natural hair is even like down to here now. Nice, nice. And at when my you know mid-20s, I lost about a similar amount. It was so thin, it was really patchy and only to here, and it was like see-through, it was very bad. I wouldn't wear it down ever without extensions in. I mean, I would wear like hats a lot. I put my hair up in a messy bun and I try to like cover this 
parts of my skin. It was really, really bad, which is why actually I felt I never felt more relevant than when um, Will Smith hit Chris Rock because I am a woman with alopecia. <laughs> I have done stand up and I get how painful it is, but also you can't hit somebody. Right. And I, I wasn't surprised to see that because of the whole words are violence thing, because if words are violence, then violence is an acceptable response to violence. And I will never understand how is, this is being seen as a progressive value because it's actually only as we become more modern and civilized as human beings that we say, okay, only words to respond to words. I mean, you think about it, I, for most of human history, even, you know, civil war, it's like you said something bad about my mom. Now we're going to have a shootout in the yard. That's, <laughs> that's what we used to do. So I don't know why these people are like words are violence. And I'm a progressive. It's like, no, you're behaving like a Neanderthal. Um, and I think there's such a difference between expressing something that maybe hurt your feelings because you want to share that or you want to share that you were hurt and trying to use hurt feelings to place yourself in a power position over others. And the latter is definitely what words or violence is all about, because as soon as you've said that what that other person did was violent, the fact that you're just keeping it at verbal only is you doing them a favor. Right, and they don't think violence is violence because they'll tell you words are violence, but then they'll tell you burning down a Pep Boys isn't violence. Well, ask the guy right. who's in the bathroom at Pep Boys. Let, let me ask you something else, because you said you're a libertarian and you're obviously on Fox, which is mostly conservative, and I always tell my audience conservative is a very wide thing right now. If a gay married guy with two kids who's pro-choice right. can be thought of as a conservative, then okay, fine, that thing's, that thing's pretty wide. But is it weird to you as like, you know, a, a relatively young chick in New York City that the progressives are the miserable ones also. Like, you, I know you don't really care about someone's sexual preference or what they wear or what they smoke. Obviously, that's all the libertarian stuff. But that used to jive with the progressives where I'm guessing when you do a show now, it's all conservatives who maybe want a little more government than you do or maybe certainly on the religion side. But those are the ones that support you. Yeah, it's very, very interesting because I'm never going to fit in anywhere just because of, you know, I just don't. And I always vote third party. I always have. I am, you know, and, and, and I'm not going to lie. I mean, I'll say things on Fox that are more libertarian. I'm more liberal on, you know, social issues. I'm very live and let live, for example. And they'll say something to me. But then there is people on the left who won't listen to me say anything and they'll just say, oh, she works at Fox News. I know everything I need to know about her mm -hmm. and she's disgusting. And like I even had to, you know, cut off contact with a, one of my closest friends um, who I knew since I was a, a teenager because it, be, you know, after Trump became president, my views never changed. I'd already actually been working here. But the fact that I, for example, had Joe Jorgensen, the libertarian candidate for president on my comedy advice show sincerely cat was a huge issue for him he was like you're you know you're not this is, is is this really good to be doing right now is this and then they bring words like safety and this and that into it and it's like what if i work at fox news but i'm also my own person with my own values and i'll have any conversation you want i'm not scared i think conversation's good i mean that's my whole thing right but to just say, I know who you are because of where you work. And it's like, don't you work at a bank like some of these people? It's like, <laughs> right. like right. The Fox, Fox News, there's actually are people who aren't, it's not all Republicans here. Obviously, it's, it's right-leaning, right? Everybody knows that. But you don't know everything that there is to know about me just from where I work. So I think it's the people on the right, they might be like, oh, I don't like that. You know, I disagree with you or whatever. But 
they will at least acknowledge me as an individual with different views, whether as people on the left will often be like, you work there, therefore I don't want to associate with you. How shocking has that been to you? Because obviously, I mean, I feel the same way. If you would have told me of 10 years ago, Dave, you're going to be on Fox basically every day and you're going to be friends with all of these crazy right-wingers, I would have been like, what are you talking about? But I, I find them open and fun and decent. And that's why I don't have a problem when people say I'm a conservative because it's like, well, conservative basically just means kind of roughly sane. I'm with you probably on all the libertarian stuff, but it's just kind of, yeah, you're, you believe in reality. How about that? Yeah, it's, it's, it's been shocking. I mean, I understand, I'm hoping that this book can be um, something that brings people together because I really do believe that we all agree on a lot more of this stuff than people want to admit for whatever reason. Um, but it's definitely been shocking to me, especially when it's been people in my personal life who have known me for all these years and they acknowledge that my views haven't changed. I haven't changed as a person. I believe the same things that I've always believed. I, I, I've never said anything other than what I believe, but it's just the fact that I work at, at Fox. And I think that I'm all about indiv- you know the individual, the, the autonomy of an individual to make their own decisions. But I also just think that individuals, there, there's so many different kinds of people out there and everybody's a unique individual. And I think that a lot of our problems come from not speaking with people with whom not just we disagree, but that we think we might disagree with, which we might not even disagree the way that we think we do if we just expressed ourselves more. Yeah, I can tell you from where I sit, it's just getting harder to do because they won't talk to us. I mean, I think it's what you're saying about, okay, you're affiliated with Fox, so a certain amount of people think this, and then, you know, I just went to D.C. a couple weeks ago. Every Republican we reached out to, 16 said yes, zero Democrats. And it's like, that's that's a tough bridge to to divide. But But that's a little bit of the inmates running the asylum over there, right? Like, they're afraid of their own people, even if they would be willing to sit down with a scary interviewer like me. Yeah, and I do have friends in my life that are definitely uh, left wing. Um, some Democrats. I honestly can have a better conversation with someone who's super, 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 super progressive because at least they see a lot of the same flaws in the system as I do. They have uh, the exact opposite solution for which mine. You know, they just want the government. I-, I want no government. Right. They want all government. So they hate they the government. No government should be bigger. But- yeah, exactly. So they see the problems, but it's the fact that the government. So, but I can at least have a more op- open sure. conversation. But those are people, obviously, that I've known a long time, and they know me first before they kind of know where I work. But yeah, it's been difficult trying to. People will think that you know if they haven't met me, that they'll see where I work, and they're like, oh, okay, well, I know who this is. I already know who this is because of where she works. And it's like that's actually not true. If you just spend five minutes with me, you'd realize that that isn't the case. But you won't spend five minutes with me. And then you understand, then maybe you'll say, oh, it's horrible how nobody gets along. It's like, well, come on. Like, I'm actually, I'm actually trying. I'm always open to a conversation with anyone. Let me ask you a couple of things about the uh, Gutfeld exclamation point program over there. I'm pretty sure that Tyrus wants to kill me. What's going on over there? No, I don't think so. I think that guy hates me and he's always looking at me like he's about to get up and step on me. Can you give me any insight? You don't think so? No, I don't. I don't think so. I think he said something about his pant leg (laughs) and then he called you out for it. But I mean, he's not like, he already told you that. You know what I mean? He's always going to let you know how he feels. 
We did also get into a very drunken fight a couple of years ago. Were you there at that at the hotel bar? Greg was there, a lot of wine and something about race, and it got very heated. You, no, yeah. I wasn't. We'll take that one offline. Okay, scratch that. Um, <laughs> so one of the things that I always tell people when I when I come back from doing Gutfeld, and it's just always great every time. It's like light and fun, and like it's just a joy to do is that it's such a slim staff over there. It's like, I feel like yeah. five people maybe, including the, the janitor are working on that show and how that is in such contrast to the other late night shows that have these massive staffs and everything else. But that's really how it is right there, right? Like you guys get in there in the morning. Do you help him with the writing at all? Yeah, yes I do. Um, I, nobody on the staff has just one job. I mean, I write for the show. Um, I'm on the show every day. Um, same with like, you know, Greg's assistant, but she also is a, like doing production and it's, it, it's, there's nobody on the show who has just one job. Our entire staff is smaller than just the writing staff of a Stephen Colbert or someone, somebody like that. Um, I think we have two, three, maybe people who just write, but also they, they sometimes are on the panel. So I, that's actually not even true. Um, I've been obviously, you know, I, I write usually a segment every single day and su submit the guest intros, which is also funny because a lot of the ones that he's gotten yelled at for being too mean to me, <laughs> I wrote them. So they're like, don't be mean to Kat. I'm like, am I too mean to Kat? Because I wrote that. Do you ever feel like you're going to get him in trouble as you're writing something and you're like, uh oh. Yeah, I have. I have. But it's, again, I think a lot of it is. I mean, I think it's because I'm a woman, too. I don't think anybody would be like, oh, you're, you're too mean to kill me, right? I think it's just because I'm a woman. But I think that I, that's what I think is so great is I'm treated as an equal. I mean, it's not like I can't handle it just because I'm a woman. I can handle it, and I can give it right back. And I have been for, oh, I don't know, what, nine years now almost? So um, I, I, I love it. I think it's it's the best. I think being in that environment where it goes back to intention, right? And I write a chapter about this, too. What matters is the intention. And there's this very harmful idea out there right now that it's not the intention. It doesn't matter if someone's offended. That's all that matters. But how can that be true? Like, how can that be true that it's exactly the same if somebody makes a joke unintentionally, somebody gets offended by the joke, than if somebody was purposely trying to say something racist or sexist and hurt somebody. Of course that matters. Of course that makes a difference. And uh, it's just absurd that, you know, when it comes to like, if you kill someone on accident versus purposely, there's different designations for that in our criminal code. Jokes are a little less consequential than someone's life. So why are we treating it like this? I don't think anyone can actually feel that way. Of course it matters. I mean, when I was losing my hair, I made jokes about it all the time. I mean, Greg even made a joke that I looked like Tanner from Bad News Bears without my extensions in. I laughed. I thought that was great. It was funny. I had an ex-boyfriend who was abusive and would tell me, like, you, you know, fuck you, you rapidly aging idiot. Like, how, those things are, they're different. Someone was trying to make me feel bad about myself so he could continue to maintain control over me. How is that not different than somebody who is just trying to make me laugh? Of course it is. And it's just insane. I mean, all the jokes, the times that I've gotten, I mean, I've been involved in a few different it scandals, one with Kimmel over jokes that was by accident. I was talking about something else and I accidentally said something. I didn't mean to be offensive, but I was treated as if I did it on purpose. And not only is that not fair to people making the joke, that really doesn't reserve the absolute 
shaming that we should be doing of people who are trying to be jerks on purpose. Right. Well, also with a guy like Jimmy Kimmel, who's been in blackface multiple times uh, and, you know, making fun of the quote unquote black accent from Carl Malone, it's like, that's why he's going after someone like you for a joke, because he has to, you know, bow to them forever. Otherwise, they'll take him out. Well, I sent him a book. Um, probably the most embarrassing thing that happened to me on air was when I made a joke about how hard it is to give my cat uh, a feral cat medication versus a human. And it was during a segment about how his, his, what his hiatus was. But we were actually also live. And I think this is the last time we were live, actually. Because um, I was talking about how it's super difficult and, like, the cat can claw you or whatever. And then Greg was like, oh, like, cat, you know, like, Jimmy Kimmel's son is, like, a heart issue. And I, like, didn't realize yeah, that. Yeah. Uh, I, did, I get that. First of all, I get the Fallon and Kimmel confused. And I, I now I was like, oh, wait, I do remember. But I remember in the article, it was like, my whole family's healthy. I remember before I made the joke, it was like, just so I'm not going to get in. I was like, I'm not going to get in trouble. But also with so much of comedy is like swinging and missing. Yeah. You know, you don't really know if something's going to land until you try it. And I was just doing that. And you, and you can't make people too afraid to try or else we're going to miss out on some really great jokes, not just in terms of laughter, but some of the darker subjects um, that can have those healing powers. But I apologize because I genuinely did feel bad. I was like, I didn't mean it like that. I don't want anybody to you know, think I did. Everyone who watched the show was actually telling me, like, you were fine, like, because I was holding back tears the entire time. I felt so awful. The next day, somebody posted a little tiny clip of it on Twitter and said that I had been making fun of him, his family, because his son had a heart problem and that it was harder to have a cat with a heart problem than a child with a heart problem. And different like media outlets, like Raw Story, if you can call it that, took it and ran with it. So I was ironically at the vet with my cat and I was like, my blowing up on social media, people telling me like, fuck you, Jimmy Kimmel's sister told me fuck off and die, all of this stuff. And like, if I had actually said it's actually no big deal, fuck your kid with a heart problem because he has a heart problem, I would have deserved that. But I was trying to make a funny joke about that and also about people who don't have children like me. Sometimes like having chi a child can be a catch-all excuse for everything. And if you don't have kids, like something that's relatable to cat owners, something that's relatable to people that don't have children. That's what I was trying to do. And I don't think I should be treated the same way as if I was trying to do that, which is a totally, I mean, that's just abhorrent, right? But it's, that wasn't my intention. And again, if we make people too afraid to try, then we're going to lose out on so much healing within ourselves and also with one another through shared experiences. I often quote Oscar Wilde, or at least loosely quote him. I mean, if you want to tell people the truth, you better be funny or they're going to punch you in the face. So <laughs> it's something like that. Let me ask you a couple other things, just kind of world-related stuff. Uh, as people can see out your window there, I think you're at the Fox News offices. Yeah. Um, you are in Midtown, New York City, a city that I once yeah. lived in and loved for 20 years of my life. But every time I go back there, which is pretty much only to do Gutfeld at this point, I find it to be a zombie of a city. It's not the same New York, Midtown where you are. There's no business people anymore. Everyone kind of wearing a hood, looks like they're going to get weed or sell weed or steal weed or something. Like what is going on in New York? See, I wouldn't even mind it being seedy if it was less expensive <laughs> because like a That's lot funny. of the That's things, funny. a lot of things that made New York so special too, like the little small businesses, immigrant owned restaurants, those, you know, special little gems. A lot of them are gone yeah. because they couldn't survive being illegal in the pandemic. And 
everything is so expensive. I mean, it's it's so crazy. I mean, I've been thinking about maybe having one of those baby things myself with my husband, but we're like, where would we put it? Where you, you know, know we have no taxes. You know we have no taxes on baby related stuff here in Florida. That's Florida, I say it to you every time I see you, Florida. The, I'm just I, I know, and I would. It's just this job. I am like less concerned with being mugged on the street than I am knowing for a fact I'm being going to, you know, I am being mugged by the government. They take (laughs) so much of my income and I walk outside and I'm like, where, what is this for? Where, Where did you, you stole my money and then what did you spend it on? And it's so expensive to live here. It's just ridiculous. Yeah. It's, I mean, do you find anyone there that thinks that it's going well? I mean, I, I still I know a few remaining people in New York and everyone I, I kid you not. I think literally everyone right now is in the process of leaving. Like and, and, and I, I already would. know probably 20 people that left in the last three years. We, we would. I mean, my husband's from New York. My life dream was always to live in New York. I mean, at this point, it's just I mean, I'm also, you know, I'm, I'm I've grown up a little bit. I'm, you know, married. I'm not really going out a lot. Uh, and I'm just sitting, you know, I'm working a lot, so I'm at home a lot. And it's just like, my home's not that big. (laughs) When I say home, I mean, handful of rooms that I'm paying so much money for that I don't even own. I'm just renting. And I, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I feel like also a lot of this commercial real estate, I mean, a lot of people are working from home. A lot of the, you know, the government, the state government here, city government's funded on this stuff. And if that, when that goes away, I mean, you, you, you pointed it out too. all the for lease signs. A lot of people aren't like, I want to take on this really expensive lease in this place that's sort of looks like it's collapsing. Uh, so I think it's going to get worse, actually. Yeah. You know, it's funny. Uh, you must know Douglas Murray, who's a Fox News contributor. Yes. And so uh, last time I did Gutfeld and I saw you at the show, I went out to dinner with uh, Douglas after and he's in from London now living in New York City. And he kept telling me how magical it was there. And I kept thinking, man, if you only knew what it used to be like, but you're seeing the vestiges of magical, but I guess that could still be magical if you're from somewhere else. Yeah, yeah, I love Douglas Murray. We sat next to each other at the uh, White House Correspondents' Dinner. He is a a good one. Um, What else is on your mind politically at the moment? I mean, obviously we can do the woke stuff till we're like blue in the face, but what, what about the sort of divide that's now happening between the red and the blue? I assume... As a libertarian, you're cool with this uh, resurgence of federalism. Yeah, <laughs> right. I mean, okay. As I mentioned before, uh, talking about feelings, I think is a, is actually a good thing. I, I know that a lot of the refrain when it comes to people on the right, I mean, you included, is that you know facts don't care about your feelings, and I totally get that. But it's also true that sometimes feelings don't care about your facts. And I know that it's the only explanation for every relationship I had in my 20s <laughs> where I was like, but I, but I love him. They're like, he treats you horrible. He has no job. He's mean to you. He's cheating on you. It's like, but I love him. So like humans are emotional creatures. We are going to have emotions. And as someone who's pro free speech, I think that includes speech about feelings. So I think that that's something that the right should acknowledge more. And again, bring up that distinction between why you're sharing your feelings. There's a difference between sharing your feelings to try to express yourself to another person or, hey, man, that hurt me or, hey, man, have you ever seen it this way? And let's have a conversation. And you hurt me. And now I have power over you. And anything you say against me, if you argue with me, that's just further proof that you're a sexist or a racist or a homophobe or a transphobe or whatever. And those two things. I think that what... 
we're really missing is communication. And I think the more we're open to that, the more we can all get along. And the more that, if things, the more speech, the better in terms of bringing us together. Um, I think a lot of the issues are, are a lot of the people who say that they're sensitive and tolerant, they're really not because they kind of want to catch somebody saying something bad because there's nothing more powerful than being a victim. And I hate to see that getting lumped in with people who do just want to share their feelings, which I think is, is a good thing because we all have them. I'm a very sensitive, emotional person, but there's a difference between that and being somebody who expects their feelings to be what the rest of the world around you caters to. That's narcissistic. That's selfish. And if you t act out on other people and try to get someone fired or like that's bullying, that's not being sensitive. That's being an asshole. And that's a very, very important distinction in my mind. Yeah. Um, to go to where we started for a second, uh, you mentioned you're not religious up top. Is that kind of the number one thing that would sort of keep you from saying that you're a conservative? Because, I mean, from where I'm at, at least in the Florida version of it, like it is libertarian down here. Like nobody really cares about weed down here. Nobody cares who you marry down here. Like people have their own personal views. And DeSantis obviously has his own views on abortion and whatever. But like... It's pretty much working down here where it is more libertarian. That is the, the sort of freedom version of it down here. See, I just want even less government than the Republicans do. That's my issue. Like, I really do believe taxation is theft. Um, when it, you know, when it comes to immigration, I never wanted the wall. I think that anybody who wants to come contribute to our uh, immigration is another one. I think that anybody who wants to come contribute to our economy is, who is nonviolent should be more than welcome to do so. I don't believe in the welfare state, though. Like, I don't believe in, I think that taking, for anybody, really. Um, and a, the main issue that I used to have big, get into fights with conservatives about, which I haven't changed, but Republicans have, is foreign policy. I'm very non-interventionist on foreign policy. And a lot, I've always had the same views on it. And I used to get yelled at from Republicans about it. And now I get yelled at from Democrats about it. <laughs> right, the Tucker Which wing, is, like, the Tucker wing has, the right, they've moved yeah. to you and now the Democrats are the Republicans of 20 years ago. Yeah, I think I'm just very, I, 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 I can't with any of the idol worship of any politician. I want even smaller government than Republicans do, def definitely than Democrats do. I'm, I wanted to criminalize all drugs. I wanted to criminalize sex work um, and, and, the religious thing, I mean, I, I, I don't think that religion should play a role in the government. But, yeah, I'm not religious. That is something that people have an issue. I mean, people have an issue with sometimes who are conservative. Uh, I don't mind it if someone's like, oh, I'll pray for you. Like, that's fine. But if people are like, you're a jerk, it's like, no, I'm not. Like, I actually I don't judge or think religious people are bad people. I'm, I'm jealous, which is I know a sin also of people who are religious, because I think I'd be way happier if I thought that I, you know, and I'm agnostic. I'm not an atheist. I just don't know. I, if I didn't think that I'm just, life is, I'm just going to keep getting older and older and older until I'm like decrepit and I'm, you know, unattractive and, you know, and then I die. And it's like, just like before I was born, I hate that. It's like, I don't, I don't want it to be that way. But um, yeah, I think it's a lot of the social I think they're working on a pill for that. Don't worry. Yeah. I'm in general, like just, I want smaller government than the two-party system does. And I think that the two-party system kind of sometimes, you know, can play us against each other a lot and to get away with its own corruption. Because it's, if, it's, if everything's so polarized and you're always going to have your own side defending you no matter what you do, and that really can just breed corruption. 
Yeah, it's interesting because I'm philosophically I'm with you on most of that. You know, the one though that I've shifted a little bit probably in the other way than you, I think is decriminalization of all drugs because I used to be for total decriminalization. And it's like, if you look at San Francisco where de facto it is, right? Like it's not legal to be selling fentanyl, but in, in essence it is because the cops don't do anything. It's like, look at that place. That can't be totally disconnected from just like an endless drug parade, you know? I, yeah, I think actually if when it comes to um, drugs- Or even New York legal. City with weed, right? Like it, the whole city, part of the decay, and I hate, I, I, I'm not against weed, 100% I'm not against weed, but like in New York City, it, the whole city smells like weed now all the time and everyone's stoned. I'm not stoned. Yeah. Um, I think legalization- See, I knew we could find one. All right, we found one person not stoned. Yeah, legalization more so than decriminalization where you can actually, um, because the system is still in place, um, where it's like this loop of like you get into drugs and then how are you going to make money? You can't make money, you know, it, it, once you have this felony on your record and, and all those sorts of things where you, you can know where you were buying, where you could like just get heroin if you wanted heroin. If that happened tomorrow, I still wouldn't do heroin. Like the reason that I don't do heroin isn't because, oh, I it's illegal. It's because, oh, I'm not smoking crack because I haven't seen that work out well for anybody, even if I could buy crack at the store. Except for Hunter I Biden. That, I think that, I, well, I think that your life is it's all your choice, but then it's also your responsibility, which is the other the other side of that coin. Um, I think every every individual can make the decisions for what works best for themselves, but then they're also responsible for their own consequences. I think that it's just immoral to take away someone's freedom because of something that they've decided to put in their body. Cat Timpf, the book is you can't joke about that. I should have showed it at the beginning, but we got it. <laughs> we made it happen. You know, I'm not a. I'm not a cable news uh, host over here, you know. I'm just, You're doing great. I'm doing all right. Kat, it was good seeing you. I'll see you great in New York. You. We can wander around, catch the wafting smoke of weed, see if you want to buy some heroin, et cetera, et cetera. I <laughs> know, no heroin for me. I know heroin. Okay, see ya. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to The Rubin Report. Don't forget to review, share, and subscribe to this podcast. If you're looking for early and exclusive content, you can join me on Locals at rubinreport.locals.com.